I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where we'll be considering together tonight uh, verse 16 of chapter 3 through verse 3 of chapter 4. Now, in our study of Ecclesiastes over the last several months, as we've looked at this book uh, periodically, we've seen that the reason that the author of this book fails to find meaning in this life is because of the reference point that he assumes. Now, for a time, the writer of Ecclesiastes looks for meaning in this life without reference to God. And without a right relationship with God, the Creator and Redeemer, there is no hope in this life. And there's no purpose for anything that happens in this life. That is essentially what he is driving at over and again throughout the the chapters of this book. On the other hand, by understanding the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, by filtering all things, as we read Scripture, by filtering all things in our life through redemptive history... Understanding that we need to be made right with God through the finished work of our Savior on the cross, we are enabled to see that there is great hope beyond the grave, and therefore everything in this life matters. And so it's this perspective of eternity that changes everything. If this life is all that there is, and if you just cease to exist when you die, then the bold assertion that this book is making is that everything in this life is pointless. However, if there is life eternal beyond the grave, then life in the present has meaning. And in fact, everything has meaning. And so these are the two options that are before us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Either nothing matters or everything matters. There's no other option. Now, now to make that statement on a Sunday night here as we gather as, as God's people, to say that either everything matters or nothing matters, we would all agree with that. That's a statement that we would all assent to. We would all affirm that that is true. Without Christ, nothing matters. But stop for just a moment and think about what a radical claim that is to say that nothing apart from Christ really matters, to proclaim that life without reference to the Lord is meaningless. And I think that that is such a radical claim because of this, because we live in a world which is convinced of the exact opposite. The predominant view around us is that no one can really know for certain what happens to you after you die. And even if you do believe that there is life beyond the grave, again, you can't enjoy or know that with certainty. So enjoy life in the moments. Live your life to the fullness, to the fullest in the moment. Besides, we're told a rational person doesn't believe that God exists and can still have a great life. So when we say that this approach towards life is worthless and meaningless, of course, that is not a message that is going to be well-received in the world around us. But we're not just saying that nothing matters at all. What we're saying is everything matters, but it only matters in a right relationship with the Lord. British playwright Somerset Maugham puts it like this, If one puts aside the existence of God and the survival after life is too doubtful, one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, if I have neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, I must ask myself what I am here for and how in these circumstances I must conduct myself. Now the answer is plain, but so unpalatable 
that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. If there is no God, then what use is my life? If there is no hope of justice, then why should I care about good or evil? How can I even define good or evil? Why am I here? Does it even matter how I live my life? If there is no God, then there is no meaning for life, and life has no meaning. Now, you know how you paint a picture upon a canvas. You take that canvas and you stretch it out upon the frame, and you take that frame and you attach it to the easel. That's as far as my artistic vocabulary goes. You have some sort of clamp, I suppose, that needs to hold it upon the easel, But nonetheless, you have that firm and fixed backdrop so that when you take your brush to the canvas, you have something stable upon which your painting can take shape. And so the backdrop, the canvas, if you will, that we need to keep in mind throughout our life is that everything does matter. As our life unfolds, it is the Lord's good providence that is taking our life to shape, placing upon that canvas his divine brush strokes in our own life. And so, therefore, everything matters. And the reason that everything matters is because there is life beyond the grave. And the reason that we know that there is life beyond the grave is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything is because in his resurrection, death itself, our greatest enemy, is defeated. I realize we have yet to even look at our text from Ecclesiastes tonight, but I think it's critical that we look at this passage tonight through the lenses of the New Testament, through the finished work of our Savior. And so, 1 Corinthians 15 is a passage that we ought to keep in mind as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. In verse 14, Paul says, "'If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain.'" Now, remember, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying that life under the sun, that is without reference to the Lord, is vanity. And so Paul here says that life without the resurrection of Christ is in vain. And so it's the resurrection of Christ that changes everything. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul goes on, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are to be pitied. You see, the inevitability of death is the thing that causes this life to be so hopeless. Over and again, the writer of Ecclesiastes laments over any accomplishment or any achievement that he encounters in life because death is looming in the background as that unavoidable reality. And so whether you have great success in life, whether you have hundreds of meaningful, close relationships, perfect health, or perhaps you're on the other end of the spectrum, you struggle to pay pay your bills, you suffer greatly in your health, you struggle to maintain any good, lasting, meaningful relationships at all, no matter what end of the spectrum you find yourself on, ultimately the same result happens to us all. We all eventually die. And our life, in the grand scheme of things, is but a breath, as we sang earlier from Psalm 103. We are upon this earth for a short time, and after that we are gone, and any memory of us has faded. 
And one of the things that our youth ministry, that the kids love to do, is to take a Saturday and go up to the Wikiwachi River, which is near Spring Hill, if you're not familiar where that is. There's a delightful lady who has a house there right on the river named Grandma B, Mrs. Boutwell, who is Linda and Ronnie's mother. And one of the reasons that I love to go is not just because it's a very restful afternoon, but it's, I always have such a great time talking with Grandma B and just hearing about stories from the old days. Back when, Grandma B, she used to live in Lakeland, and she attended Covenant before she retired and moved up to the Spring Hill area. And the last time that we were there, not, not so long ago, she said, you know, when I visit Covenant these days, it's kind of discouraging because all of my people are gone, and now my children are the old people. <laughs> and my children's peers, I should throw in. <laughs> But you see, this is why the writer of Ecclesiastes laments upon the vanity of life. If death is the end, if we just go from one generation to the next, and that's it, then what's the point of anything in life? Death happens to us all, and it either threatens to destroy everything about us and everything that we have worked for, or through the redemption of Christ, death has been conquered, and death is now our entrance into his presence forever. His finished work has already purchased our redemption. We have eternal life now in the present, in the inner man, and this is what gives us great hope. This is what gives us great comfort. This is what gives us purpose in all things. This is why the writer of this book focuses frequently upon death, not because he's a pessimist and he just can't help it, but because death is a reality that we all must be prepared to face. So those are some things I think that are important to keep in mind as we look at this book of Ecclesiastes. Let's start again in chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." Thus far, the reading of God's Word. 
But I think it, it goes without saying that the writer of Ecclesiastes is a gutsy writer. He's not worried about writing a best-selling self-help book. He's too much of a realist for that. He's not worried about upsetting folks. He's not worried about shaking them out of their complacency. In fact, he wants to do that because his concern is to portray an honest and open view of life. He asks the difficult questions of life. He pushes you to the foundation of life, asking the hardest questions that anyone might ask. What is the meaning of the universe? Does God exist? And if He exists, well, what relevance is that for me in my life? What happens to us after we die? Are we just like the beasts who are tossed into a hole in the ground and simply return back to dust and and that's the end of us? And how do I even know the answer to these questions? And as he looks at life in this world, he is struck, as you can see in this passage, with what we could call the multifaceted problems of life in the world. The first thing that he does is he talks about the reality of injustice. The reality of injustice. Now, really, throughout this whole passage that we read tonight, that we're looking at tonight, he sees areas of injustice in different realms of life. As he looks at life under the sun, remember, again, that's a reference point without reference to the Lord. He sees all sorts of injustices. And injustice can happen in a number of different ways. In verse 16, we see there that there are some who are in positions of leadership and authority over us who are supposed to stand for truth, justice, and righteousness, but instead they have replaced those things with wickedness and corruption. In other words, those who are supposed to give oversight and rule in integrity are themselves corrupt. The guilty go free, and the innocent are punished. Now, this is obviously not just an ancient problem. We see it all around us. Certainly in our own time, we don't have to work very hard to see the type of injustice that he is alluding to. As we think of just this past week, the infamous 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, we see this injustice so clearly in the abortion debate. Those in positions of leadership over us continue to ignore that which is so abundantly clear, discounting and suppressing the truth when it comes to the sanctity of life. Or not a week goes by in which we don't hear about corrupt law enforcement officials, wicked politicians, teachers who take advantage of those positions of leadership, even church and community leaders. There is corruption and there is abuse of power all around us. And this is not just a matter of inconvenience, you see, but his assessment of it is is spot on. This is a wicked and evil thing that happens. And it's not just that those things happen, although that's bad enough, but you sense his frustration here at the beginning of chapter 4. The frustration is even deeper than that because it seems as though there is nothing that he can do to remedy this problem. In the place of justice is wickedness. And it seems as though our hands are tied and there is nothing that we can do about it. And so we see injustice when those who are wicked and deserving of punishment go free. We see injustice when those who are innocent are condemned. And we see this injustice on a global scale. Wars that break out over trivial matters while the lives of innocent people are destroyed simply because they're caught in the crossfire. Or people who struggle to survive as their economy is destroyed 
because of political sanctions, when the only crime that those people have committed is just being born in the wrong country, people in poor nations where government leaders are unbelievably corrupt, where such leaders live in luxury at the expense of those who are under them, while those who are weak and powerless starve as they suffer great injustice. As our summer short-term team prepares to go to Belize later in June, we're reading a book together called When Helping Hurts. One of the statistics in that states that 40% of the world's population survives on less than $2 a day. Injustice is pervasive in the world around us, and it's a level of injustice that seems absolutely overwhelming. How can that problem be remedied? And not only do we see such injustice on a global scale, but we experience it in our own lives. We see injustice when an unethical employee gets promoted, while the one who is faithful and diligent and perhaps a bit quiet gets passed up again. We see injustice when a classmate cheats on an exam and gets a better grade than you do, although you've sacrificed a night of sleep to be prepared. And so we see injustice when someone else gets favorable treatment, while another is more deserving. We see injustice when we are more harshly treated than someone else who is equally deserving. At some point in our lives, we have all been on the receiving end of injustice, and we all know that life is unfair. We long for justice. We long for equity. But this is not all. You see, along with this injustice that is so pervasive in the world around us comes another problem, that of suffering and depression. Again, chapter 4, verse 1, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And so those who are oppressed, you see, they seem to be stuck in this condition. It seems like there is no hope that there is no one to represent them, no one to comfort them, no one to help redeem this situation. As he writes, his heart goes out to them. He wants to console the victims and bring oppressors to justice. And so you see, not only is there a longing for justice to be met, but there's a desire to bring comfort to those who struggle. And for anyone who has seen another person victimized, we have that same longing perhaps ourselves for justice to be done, for the innocent to be vindicated, for comfort to come to those who suffer loss. And we want it now because we know that for justice to be postponed is itself an injustice. He can see so clearly the problems in the world, and can't we all? And yet the problems are so significant that it seems as though they will never go away. And so he longs to bring an end to this oppression And the comfort that he longs for is that everything that is broken in this world will be made right. So when we think about the frequency of injustice, and when we think about the depth of injustice, and when we think about the fact that there is really nothing that we ourselves can do about it, we're faced with some pretty significant temptations. We're tempted to question the character of God. We're tempted to question whether he really is in control. And if he is in control, does he really know what he's doing? Is he one who can be trusted? 
Does he care about the injustice of the world? And if he does care, then why does he delay? Because isn't delaying itself, again, an injustice? Well, perhaps we're tempted toward anger and toward despair. Why do so many people seem to flourish in their evil and in their wickedness, while the righteous seem to have the most most difficult lives? That's a theme that he comes back to over and again in this book. Those who are wicked seem to have the easier life than those who were committed in their relationship to the Lord. It's tempting for our anger to be displayed in self-righteousness or a judgmental and critical spirit toward others. Think about your own life for a moment. Isn't it very tempting to look at those who are not like-minded as you, not like-minded theologically, not like-minded politically, not like-minded in your economic or social views, and to look at them and to simply presume that if they just thought like me, then all the problems in this world would go away. Very tempting to allow that anger to take root in your heart, thus putting people in a different, lower category than us. Or maybe there's the temptation to just give up. Things don't work out the way that they should. Things are broken all around us, and the temptation might be to just put God on the shelf and just to indulge and live for myself like everyone else around me. They seem to go through life fine. They seem to have a much more enjoyable life than I do. Maybe it would be easier to just sear my conscience and just live for myself. These are very real temptations that that we face. And when you stop and think about all of the problems in this world, it seems absolutely overwhelming. Doesn't it seem like the easiest thing to do is just to exit this world? That's the temptation that he faced in verses 2 and 3. Those who have departed this life are in a more fortunate position than those of us who are still alive. Perhaps it would be better not to experience life at all because of the hardship and sorrow and oppression that we all experience in life. So how should we handle all this suffering and injustice? What should we do when it seems like such an overwhelming situation? What should our response be when it seems as though sometimes God is remote, when it seems as though He's aloof, uncaring, even unjust? These are serious matters, serious matters that require more than just a trite response. Well, God is in control. Trust Him. Well, I know that's true, but maybe it sort of feels like shooting a BB gun at a stone that's rolling down upon me. Where's the real comfort? Where's the lasting solution? See, it's at this point that many commentators sort of stop. Well, I guess that's it. That's sort of what we're left with. This is sort of not only the low point in Ecclesiastes, but really one of the low points in all of God's Word. But I think he begins to paint a picture of relief for suffering and injustice in verse 17 of chapter 3. Look there again. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, verse 17 sounds really like an application of verses 2 through 8. You'll recall the poem there that we looked at a number of weeks ago. It's that poem in which he covers every circumstance in life, stating that there is a time for everything. And so here in verse 17, we read that there is a time in which God will make all things right. So when we see problems in the world, 
And those problems are numerous in terms of quantity. Those problems are huge in terms of their complexity. We might tend toward anger, toward sorrow, towards jealousy or despair, but we can ultimately trust in God because He is the God of justice, and He will make all things right in the end. And I was, I was struck recently with the frequency at which the New Testament writers speak of the justice of God. It's something that we find in every book of the New Testament. And as they speak about the justice of God, it's something that gives them hope, and it's something that shapes their response in the present, and even defines, we could say, their ethics in the present because of that coming justice and judgment of the Lord. Listen to just a few verses from Romans chapter 12. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And a few verses from the pastoral epistles as we go through them Sunday mornings. 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verses 11 and following, there is encouragement to the church to persevere to the end because one day our Lord Jesus Christ will appear. And it's the reality of His coming that ought to change the way we live in the present. Or 2 Timothy 1, 12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Or Titus chapter 3, Paul writes there that we have been given this hope of eternal life. Therefore, because of that hope of eternal life, we are to be submissive to those over us, obedient, speaking evil of no one, gentle, courteous, and more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Or 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes there that there are those who live for their passions. There are those who live for the self, for self-indulgence. And that's the thing that drives them in everything that they do. And they're not only surprised that you don't go along with them, but deride you. They, they mock you for not joining along with them in that life of self-indulgence. But verse, four, verse 5, rather, he says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so when we see injustice all around us, and when it's something that seems to overwhelm us at times, what we're told to do is to, do, to be driven back to what we know to be true about the nature of the Lord. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He is the God of justice. And we are to be driven ahead. While we live in a time of injustice, there is a day coming in which the God of justice will make all things right. We can trust in Him. He knows what He is doing. And even if injustice and suffering seems to be everywhere, those are not things that escape His watchful eye. He knows all that is happening in the world around us, and He will one day judge everything. Now, the reality of that coming day of judgment, the knowledge that it is the Lord who is going to bring that justice, 
one day does not mean that we simply sit back and wait for that day of judgment and do nothing as though we're passive, but we should intervene when we have opportunity. But we should always have in mind the reality that injustice will continue in this life until the Lord returns. Our confidence cannot be in human leaders. It would be naive of us to presume if we just had our elected officials in the right positions that life would be perfect, that all the problems in this world would vanish. But our confidence is to be in the Lord alone. And it's this theme of the justice of God that the writer of Ecclesiastes is even driving toward. At the very end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 14, he returns to this theme of God's judgment. He says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the reality of God's knowledge of all things and the trust that we can have in Him, in His ability to do what is right, that is what will bring us comfort in the present. We live with the hope of that final day, that that day of judgment is coming and we can trust in Him. But still, we might be impatient. Why does He delay? We know it's coming. We say it every Sunday morning and evening as we close our worship service, come quickly, come quicker, come now. Why does He delay? Look at verse 18, chapter 3. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. And so here you see he gives one of the reasons why this judgment day is delayed. To test them to reveal a truth to them, to reveal a truth to us. We need reminding of who we are and who the Lord is. We need to be reminded of how fragile life is, to be reminded of our own mortality. We need to see ourselves for who we really are, as people who die, and a people who die because we're the ones that brought sin into the world. He's reminding us of our destiny, that inevitability of death in verses 19 and 20. And so as you look at the world around you and you see the animals die so quickly and so easily, you are to be reminded of how fragile life is and to be reminded that one day you too will die. Every living creature has life as a gift from the creator of all. But it will not last forever. And when we die, our bodies will return to dust. And that language that he uses in verse 20 is to remind us of the curse that the Lord brought to Adam due to the sin that he brought into this world. From dust we are, and to dust we shall return. And when we're talking about reasons for the delay of God's judgment, consider Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2, listen to verses 1 through 4. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, instead of being impatient towards God at his delay, to see his delay as evidence of his kindness and mercy, giving us opportunity to repent of our own judgmental hearts. And see his delay, we are to see his delay as an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel with a world which is lost in darkness. To see his delay as an opportunity to be that light in a dark world that is filled with confusion. To see his delay as an opportunity to give attention to the evil within our own hearts. To seek to kill that sin within and to live unto holiness. And so instead of being impatient with the Lord's delay... What Paul is doing here in Romans 2 is exhorting us to consider our own hardness of heart and to see that it is the Lord's kindness, you see, that is to lead to repentance in our own life. And we all know people who question the credibility of the Christian faith because they want to see some empirical evidence. They want to know some sort of proof that there is life beyond the grave. You hear people say things like this all the time. If God exists, and if he's so powerful, and if he can do anything that he wants, then why doesn't he just show himself to me? Why doesn't he just convince me? Why doesn't he just bring someone back from the dead? Like God never thought of that before. The writer of Ecclesiastes struggles himself with this in verse 21. Who knows, he says, whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And notice his struggle in verse 21. You see, we're told that there is life after death, but how do we really know? You know, you hear about these crazy people all the time that make the rounds on the morning talk shows, the ones who supposedly died and saw some sort of light or whatever, and they come back. Well, there's a reason why they're on the morning talk shows, I suppose. But how do we know for certain that there is life beyond the grave? How do we know that this is not just something that we've been told? Can we really know for certain that heaven exists? Can we know that we will go there when we die? You know, if, you, if you have an inheritance that's awaiting you when you turn of age, certainly that will change the way that you live in the present. If we knew what happened to us after we die, then surely that would help us learn how to live in the present, would it not? Is the solution to just not think about it? To go about sort of immersing yourself in work? That's his temptation. Look again at verse 22. I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Not really certain about the future, not really certain what happens after death, so I suppose that I'll just immerse myself in my labor, for that's my lot in life. Is the solution to just lament our existence like he does in chapter 4? The dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Verse 3, he even goes on to say that perhaps it's even better not to be born at all. So when the problems of this world overwhelm us, when it seems like there is nothing that we can do to make things right, it's very tempting to think that we would just all be better off dead. And you can almost feel the longing that he has throughout this passage, the longing for someone to bring comfort, the longing for someone to come on high and remedy all of the struggles that he experiences. And this is where we need that larger perspective that Scripture offers to us. 
where the passage that we read from 1 Corinthians 15 can bring us great comfort and hope. Because the longing that he has for a comforter in chapter 4 is realized in the person of Christ. You see, he longs for someone to comfort the victims. But you see, true and lasting comfort can only come if justice comes along with it. What good will it do to just sort of empathize with someone unless you have the ability to fix the problem? And because he's so overwhelmed with the scope of injustice in the world, he knows that it cannot be a mere man. It cannot be someone from below, but ultimately it is God himself who must come down from above. And of course he does in the person of Christ, bringing comfort, bringing justice, bringing hope, bringing redemption. Psalm 49, verse 15. God will ransom my soul from the power of hell, for he will receive me. And Jesus says in John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. In which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, We could put along with that everything in the world outside of us wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the promise that is ours, that as our faith is put in the Lord Jesus as our substitute for sin, we will rise again on that final day, never to see decay again, never to experience injustice again, but to be comforted for all eternity, comfort that comes because it is accompanied by justice. And as certain as the resurrection of Christ is from the dead, that same level of certainty exists for those of us who are His. And so just as the knowledge of a future inheritance would change the way that you lived in the present, So this future reality of the return of Christ ought to intrude into the present of our own lives and change absolutely everything. By His grace, you can persevere through through trials, knowing that He has purpose, knowing that there is something greater lying ahead, knowing that one day all wrongs will be rectified, all injustices will be taken care of. And the reason that you can be certain of this future judgment is because Jesus has already been raised from the dead. The certainty of the future is tied to the fulfillment of the past. It's the reality of eternity that puts even the most difficult of trials in its proper perspective. We do not know the time of His return. Of course, we long for the day of His return, the time that justice will occur. But He knows, and we can trust in His perfect timing. And we can look to the resurrected Christ 
as evidence of his return. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the great hope that is found in the finished work of our Savior, the one who came from on high to bring comfort to our souls, to bring justice, to release us from the oppression of our own sin that we brought into this world. Lord, may we look with eyes of faith again and again uh, to the hope of the return of our Savior. And may our gaze be fixed upon that glorious day. And may the hope of that day intrude into the present, even this week, as we face in, uh, struggles of various kinds, as we see injustice all around us, as we ourselves are perhaps recipients of such injustice. May our response be one of, of faith, of hope, of peace, and of trust in the Lord of glory, in whose name we pray. Amen.